tonight's subject is number one, topical, number two, interesting, and number three, valuable, even for people who don't think it's actually immediately relevant to their lives. And that is the lessons that we could learn from the Haggadah, from the book that guides us through the Seder night, the lessons that we could learn about parenting and educating. Because there's some, I think, very central ideas that we see in the Haggadah and very powerful lessons that we can use in our parenting and educating. Now, some people may say, well, my kids are married. Or I don't have any children. And I think even for those people, it's also a part of their Haggadah. And therefore, it's relevant to them because we have upcoming holiday of Pesach. But I think broadly, it does show us a little bit of the difficulty, the uphill battle that we face in connecting whatever it is we want to whatever it is we want to change. So, for example, you, you want to educate children. So there's, a, there's something you want to give to them, but to actually link the ideas or the attitudes or the behaviors that you want your children to exhibit and to link that with the children is somewhat of a tricky task, which is why parenting and educating and pedagogy is, is somewhat challenging and difficult. And those same principles actually apply if you want to change yourself. And it's maybe even harder to change yourself because it's also sort of an educational process where you're trying to take, let's say, you take Torah and you're trying to apply it to yourself. So there's this, there's this journey that has to travel. The Torah has to travel some journey from the Torah itself to you, to within you, to change yourself. And that applies to children, that applies to us. And, of course, like we said, because it's such a central part of the Haggadah, I think it's also relevant to our Pesach. And, of course, we know that there is a portion of the Haggadah that is addressing the children. There's a mitzvah to teach your children about the story of the Exodus. And on a more granular level, we're told in the Haggadah that there's four different kinds of children. There's the wise one, there's the wicked one, there's the simple one, and there's the one who doesn't know how to ask. And these are the four kinds of children, four kinds of sons, and therefore the questions they ask are different, and the answers that they're given are also different. And I think by the by the Torah and the Haggadah, demarking these like four groups and this four specific methodology, I think we do get to see a very unique window into what we as parents and educators and we as people trying to change ourselves, what we have to go through in order to achieve our aims. Now, it's important to stress that these four categories and these four conversations and dialogues, father to son, are not the invention of the author of the Haggadah. Instead, they're actually four different verses. There's four verses in the Torah where the Torah describes a discussion, a dialogue between parent, between a father and a son. And because each one of them is slightly different, the author of the Haggadah tells us that, oh, these are four different children, four different types of sons, and therefore they warrant four different types of conversations. So that's a kind of a general introduction. Now, when we see that there's different questions and different answers for different children, the first thing we obviously see is that kids are different. And as a result of them being different, they need to be taught differently. So I think just to open up this discussion, there's two questions to ask. And I'm going to try to develop a certain 
idea and then see how it applies in the Haggadah. So the first question is, why is parenting and educating not cookie-cutter? Why is it not simplified? There's a mitzvah in the Torah to put on a mezuzah. And you look at a mezuzah, it's very defined. What is a mezuzah? How do you put it up? How do you hang it up? What do you need to do? And that's it. You follow the rules. There's another mitzvah in the Torah to educate. And somehow, no, there's four kinds of kids, and therefore each kid needs a different way of being treated and being guided. Simplified. Give me the instructions. What do I need to do? And let me do it. Why precisely do we need to treat different children differently? That's question number one. Question number two, there are two verses in the Torah that we read multiple times a day to talk about teaching children, educating children, guiding children, parenting. And they are in the first two paragraphs of the Shema. We're told in the first paragraph of the Shema, You should teach the Torah to your children and speak in the words of Torah. And the second paragraph of the Shema says, You should teach your children the Torah so they should, they should speak about words of Torah. Does it say, you tell the wise one this, send the wicked one with that, then doesn't, it doesn't give us any variability. Nothing. It just says, you have children, teach them Torah. You have children, it doesn't make any distinctions between the different kinds of children. So that seems to kind of fly in the face with this whole notion that we go into great detail on Pesach to say, well, there's different kids and different questions and different conversations, different answers. And somehow in the other verse, or one of the other verses that talk about teaching children, it just, this is what you do with children. You teach them Torah and they learn it and it doesn't give us any sort of differentiation between these four groups of children that apparently exist. To answer this question, I think we have to make a distinction between the goal of parenting and the means of parenting. What What is our objective? What are we trying to achieve? What's the end goal? And how do we get there? And I think this is maybe the key, if there's any one key of parenting, it's, it's this particular point. I think we could say, and I'm going to prove it, that the goal of parenting, and really the goal of any education, is not just about imparting knowledge or ideas. It's about teaching the charge, be it the child or the student, guiding them so they could operate on their own. We must strive. The end goal is that our children could exist and thrive and flourish without our help. The parent passes, the parent, the child moves to a different state, the child's on their own, the child's an adult. How they live at that point really shows us how successful the education of the parent prior was. So the goal is the child flourishes on their own without the parent there. Thus, the only time you could find out whether or not the parent was successful, it's not in the act of parenting when the parent is still there with the child. It's when the child is already on their own. The way my grandfather explained it is a beautiful illustration. He says you have a, a candle and an unlit candle, a lit candle and an unlit candle. The parent is the lit candle and the child is the unlit candle. So you touch the two candles together 
and you keep it there for a little bit and then you withdraw the initial candle and then the second candle remains lit on its own. So the touch point of parent and child in education is when the parent imparts whatever they impart and then they move away and the child grows up and hopefully is a very successful adult on their own absent the parent's oversight and guidance. And that is successful parenting. And that's the goal. And therefore, so let's, let, let's look at these verses, the Shema. What does it say? It says, you should, the first chapter, the first paragraph reads, you should teach, you should teach your children, study words of Torah. The second verse reads, you should teach them the words of Torah so that they can speak it. So the Ramban, in his commentary on the Torah, he writes, is that the first paragraph of the Shema is the beginning of the education, and the second paragraph is the culmination of the education. The beginning is you teach them words of Torah. The end, the goal, is that they speak words of Torah on their own. That they should speak the words of Torah on their own, even though you're not teaching them. Because they have now, you've imparted whatever it is that you need to impart within them, and now they're on their own, and they're still studying words of Torah. They're still doing what you did initially, then you know it's successful. That is really the goal, and there's no variability. We're not told different kids. We're not said, oh, the goal for the wicked pun is, or the goal for the righteous one, or the goal for the one. They're all the same. That's the end goal. The end goal of parenting in Torah is that the parent imparts the Torah in the child, and the child, once the parent goes away, still obeys the words of Torah that the parent, that the father imparted within them. The way I would maybe explain this is like you want to teach a child how to ride a bicycle. You hold the back of the bike while they drive and you're there guiding them and and you're maneuvering, making sure they don't fall and you're tipping them in the right direction. But of course, the ultimate goal is that they learn how to ride on their own. Similarly, you teach them words of Torah and then you move away and hopefully they could study words of Torah on their own. They could obey the words of Torah. That is the goal. And in these verses, we're not told, oh, there's four kinds of kids. Because these verses are describing what the big picture goal of educating is. And that is to get your kids started, kickstart your kids' spiritual relationship with God so that when they grow up, they'll flourish on their own. That's the goal by all children. Now, just to reinforce this point, the Hebrew word for education is the word chinuch. And the the first time this appears in the Torah is in chapter 14, verse 14 of Genesis. And it's describing that Abraham is informed that Lot, his brother-in-law, has been kidnapped and been taken captive. And Abraham mobilizes his forces, this 318 people, and they start partaking in the war. That's what the verse says. But the Hebrew word for Abraham mobilizing his forces is vayarek es chanichav. He mobilizes his chanichav. The word chanichav is the same root as chenuch, which means education. Says Rashi, what does this mean? It means that these are the ones that Abraham trained in doing mitzvos. Abraham educated them. And then Rashi elaborates. What does this mean, this idea of chinuch of education? It's a word that describes the beginning 
of the entrance of a person, o kli, or a vessel, leumnos shehu asi lamud ba, in a craft that they in the future will do. The word chinach means the training of an apprentice in the field, in the area, in the profession that they will do on their own. So just like if you have a blacksmith or a shoemaker or a plumber and they bring on a charge, they bring on an apprentice and they show them how to do it so that when that child or that student, when they graduate, they could do it on their own. Again, we see that it's not about programming your computer that does with exactly what you tell it to do. It's training. It's guiding the charge so that he or she will learn the skills, the roots to flourish on their own even once you remove the teacher. If you remove – say you teach someone how to be a welder and then you go away but they're fully trained, you could give them anything to weld and they could do it already on their own because they have learned the skill. Like they know how to ride their bike as in our proverbial example or they know their candle is already lit. That's the objective of Chinuch and here we're told that this is for everyone. This is the goal for everyone. When we're told that there's four different kinds of children that have to be trained and approached in four different kinds of ways – What this is telling us is that the means to achieve the goal, the goal that the children study Torah on their own, the goal that the children exhibit, the lessons of Torah once the father's already gone, that is obtained in different ways by tailoring the education to the actual child. And now it makes, I think, a lot of sense. Because if parenting was about giving a lot of knowledge, then you just give a lot of knowledge regardless of the child. But if parenting is taking a child and training them, the person themselves, so they become a different person, then you have to know the child in order to change the child. If it's any child, just give them knowledge, bombard any child with knowledge, you've done your job. No, it's about changing the child. The child does not is not trained and now you need to make them trained. The child's candle is not lit and now you need to make it lit. So therefore, you have to deal with the particular child that's in front of you. And therefore, if it's one kind of child, you would do it one way. The goal is the same, but you have to use this means for this child. And that means for a different child. And specifically, here we see why. The reason why you have to train d- different children differently is because you're training the actual child. And if you don't do it properly, it's not going to work. If you try to, as they say, do the square peg in a round circle, it's just not going to work. It's not going to be successful. And the difference will exhibit once you try to have the child do something on their own. If you train the child to be a plumber, but you teach, you give them the tools of a shoemaker, maybe you won't notice it because they're still your apprentice. But once they go to do their first service call, it's going to be an absolute disaster. Once they go on their own in the future, in the long term, that's when the specific individualized parenting, well, that's where we see the differences. Because now they're on their own, they don't have the parent to show them what to do, and they weren't trained properly. So I just want to bring this full circle. There's a pivotal verse in the book of Proverbs, which is the verse that describes the idea of individualized parenting. It says, Chanoch lanar alpi darko. 
which is the famous part of the verse. Educate the young as per his way. Every child has his own way, and therefore you have to guide them as per his way. This is chapter 22, verse 6. However, the verse continues. Gam ki yaztin lo yasur mimena. Also, as he ages, he will not depart from it. What this, what this means is, is that the reason why you have to have variability, individualized parenting in children, is so that when they get older, they won't depart from it. Short term, doing cookie cutter education is not so bad. Because they're still under your charge. How bad, how bad could it be? The difference is found in the long term, when they get older, when they're on their own, when the parent's gone, when the parent's title has been removed, when the parent removes his hand from the bicycle. At that juncture, if you were successful in parenting them as per their way, in the way that would be efficacious with them, then they won't depart from it. Then they've been trained. As opposed to if you don't give them the exact way that they need, if you don't use the means, the proper means to educate them to achieve the goal, the means that are tailored for this child, then when they get older, they invariably will veer from the way because they're not compatible now with their way because they weren't trained properly. So thus, just to, again, reiterate the point, the goal of all Jewish education is brought down in the verses of the Shema is to infuse them with Torah so that they could thrive thrive on their own. On Pesach, we see that there are different ways to achieve that with different children. And that, that was basically the introduction. What I want to do now is kind of go through these four sons and, and what the Haggadah says about these sons and see what we could learn about the various different kinds of children and the various ways that they must be taught. So the Haggadah says that the Torah speaks with respect to four sons. The first one is the wise one, the Chacham. The second one is the Rasha, the wicked one. The third one is the Tam. The Tam is like the simple one. And the fourth one is She'eno Yodea Lishol, the one who does not know how to ask. The commentaries explain that this is in descending order of wisdom. We think of the wicked one as the worst. Here, we're shown that it's not the worst, it's the second best. So it's actually above average. And the worst is someone who's totally removed, doesn't know how to ask. And that could be either because they are too young or because they're not capable of asking. So what does the wise son say? So this is from, from a verse in the book of Deuteronomy of Devarim, chapter 6, verse 20. The wise son asks, What are the statutes and the laws and the commandments that Hashem, our God, commanded you? This question demonstrates that they're interested in knowledge. And they're not just interested in general ideas. They don't want stories. They want details. They want the laws, the edicts, the commandments. They want a whole picture. And this is responded to by teaching them the laws of Pesach. And the Haggadah gives one example, but there's many laws of Pesach. And I think that this wise son is probably the son, the child who thrives most in today's schools because they're academically inclined. 
and they're academically curious and they want to learn and they want to know and they want to grow and they want to study and they want to understand. And they just say, tell me, tell me the laws, tell me the edicts, tell me the standard, tell me all. And their mouth is wide open and whatever you're able to fit in, they're able to swallow, whatever. And this is a, a fantastic thing because you're not facing any resistance from them. They just want to learn. And the more you teach them, the more they know. And the more they know, the more they grow in their knowledge of Torah. And we see these kids, they're rare, I would say, but they exist. They certainly existed in my class. They just want to study and they just want, they, they love doing homework and they love preparing for tests and they were all in. And to us, it was, they were like aliens, but these kids do exist. And the only limiting factor of them studying everything is what they're taught. This child is ready to take whatever you give them. And therefore, this really, it doesn't rely on, on tactics of parenting and pedagogy. You don't need to be very clever in how you educate such a child. You have to be knowledgeable. You have to be wise. You have to be capable. But you don't have to be, you don't, there's not a lot of deafness or cleverness. You're not, there's no reverse psychology here. It's just the kid wants to know. Whatever you can teach them, they know. If if you don't seize this opportunity, you as a parent or the teacher, you say, ah, I'm just going to teach them what I would teach everyone else, then you're doing a disservice to the child. The child needs to learn and grow and needs to be taught and needs to be taught nonstop. Of course, it doesn't mean the kid doesn't shouldn't go play basketball. That also is part of the educational conveyance of the teachers and the schools and everything. But this child is ready. And therefore, the objective that you have to do with this child is to try to infuse them with as much knowledge and wisdom and guidance as possible. And you don't need to do much by way of working around the obstacles you face in parenting. You just have to bombard them with Torah and wisdom and guidance and derecheretz in a pleasant way, and that's that's it. And of course, the next child is, I think, the most difficult one. Not because the child is not capable and not because the child's not interested, but because the child is rebellious. And he's called a wicked one and this, I think, would apply even to someone who's not technically wicked. And the reason why I say that is because by Torah standards, the word for a wicked person is someone who sins. This is talking about a kind of child. It's not necessarily how they behave, but the inner workings of how you as a parent have to approach them. And you have to realize that for this child, you face an uphill battle because the child's resisting. Whereas the Chacham, the wise one, very capable, very interested. This one, very capable, maybe even more capable than the first one, but recalcitrant, but resistant, but rebellious, but fighting back, but repelling, but always has a snide comment, always has an answer. No matter what you say, they could always one-up you, always. These children have tremendous potential. But here we're being guided specifically that, that there's something you have to work around. Here you do need your deafness and your cleverness as an educator because you have to realize there's something stopping them. And how you choose to engage with this resistance is very important. 
because you could actually add more fuel to the fire and you can make the resistance so much more powerful and so much more insurmountable. But maybe there's a way to spin it around. Maybe there's a way to use their their resistance as an asset. And that would be, of course, ideal. And I think here where we're guided with this child is specifically how to do this. What do we see? The Haggadah says to us, Rashama, what does he say? And it quotes a verse from chapter 12, verse 26 of Exodus. He says, Ma ha'avodah hazos lachem. What is this worship work that you are doing? And the author of the Haggadah points out that he is conveying the, his rebellion in a, in a subtle way. He says, what is this work that you're doing? You're doing it, but I'm not part of it. I'm not interested. I'm resisting. I'm not partaking. I'm not participating in this. And that's where he is showing his resistance. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to answer him. Again, this is a verse, chapter 13, verse 6 of Exodus. You're supposed to tell him, tell your son on that day, because of this, Hashem did for me when I left Egypt. What do you tell him? For me, but not for you. He said, why are you doing it? You, but not me. And you answer, I'm doing it, me and not you. That's the answer. The Russia, the wicked one, his rebellion is couched in his disinclusion of self. He's saying, what is this whole pace of thing that you're doing? And implicitly, he's saying, you're doing it. But I'm not doing it. And this is not, I'm not partaking in this. He doesn't say it explicitly. He doesn't say I'm not partaking in it. He just says it's implicit. He's like you're doing it, but not me. And what's the answer? Hashem took me out of Egypt. That's what you tell him. You tell him Hashem took me out of Egypt. Me, but not you. If you were there, you would not be redeemed. What does this mean? Again, he disincluded himself. You disinclude him. That's what it says. He says, "What are you? Why are you making Pesach?" He says, "Well, because Hashem took me out of Egypt." And when he says, "Why? Why are you doing Pesach?" He's implying, "I'm not doing Pesach," and you're implying, "Hashem took me out of Egypt, but not you." That's what the Haggadah tells us. Let's try to figure out what's happening here. First of all, I want to suggest if if you read this quite simply, it seems like that. The way to treat a recalcitrant child is by hitting back. He hits, you hit him back. He says, I'm not part. You say, okay, you're not part of it. That's what it seems to be saying. And it seems to be very harsh. He's disincluding himself. You smack him right back. You're not part of it. I'm not part of it, he says. You say, you're not part of it. You confirm, so to speak, his position. The problem with that is it doesn't seem to jive well. If the person, if the wicked one is saying, I don't want to partake in it, you want to try to find a way to welcome him in. You want him to partake in it. Why are you pushing him away? So I want to suggest that learning the subject deeply and looking at the commentary, we see that a little bit of a different story. So first of all, the verse begins, in fact, the name of the Haggadah, what's the word Haggadah mean? Haggadah means telling over. Now, typically, the in, the in the Torah, 
there's other words for that. There's Vayadaber, and he said, Vayomer, and he said, Vayagid, or Hagada is also that he said. But why does he use this particular word to describe the book and the night, the evening, the book that guides us on this evening, but also describe the response that we give to the wicked one? We tell him, You tell your son, Hashem does for me, not for you. Why the word Haggadah specifically, not the word Amir or Vayadaber, uh, Dibur? So Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, gives us an answer. Rashi says the word Haggadah is etymologically linked to the word Agadah. And the word Agadah or Agadic, they refer to the more interesting parts of Torah. The parts of them, the Midrash and the story, the things that pull the heart. That's the words of Rashi quoting from the Talmud in the book of Shabbos on page 87a. Says Rashi, the reason why the night of Pesach, we, we, we read the Haggadah and we respond to the wicked one with this words, we respond to them with words that pull his heart, that tug at his heartstrings. Very pleasant, ple- pleasant. So again, this obviously does not imply that we're very harsh. It says that we're very, we're very pleasant. We're trying to make a, an environment and a situation and a response and a answer and a dialogue with the rebellious one in a way that is conducive to influencing them and bringing them in and pulling them in, pulling, tugging on their heartstrings. The story that I read this week about a, an individual who was nominated or was hired to become a, a teacher in a yeshiva. And he went over to Rabbi Yashiv. Rabbi Yashiv was the premier halachic authority in Israel in the end of the 20th and early part of the 21st century. He passed away. He was like 107. And he knew all of Talmud and all of halacha and all of everything, like by heart. So this individual who was hired goes over to Rabbi Yashiv and says to him, okay, I'm going to be now educating children. So how do I approach them? Do I approach them? Do I, do I treat them harshly or pleasantly? Now, the Talmud actually asks this question. The Talmud on page 107b in the book of Sanhedrin says that when you educate your children, you should use the right hand to bring close and the left hand to push away. So the right hand is more dominant and therefore the dominant hand is pleasant. And the weaker hand, that's harsh. So if you, with the right hand, you pull close, and with only the left hand, you push away. That's what the Talmud says. Rabbi Eliashev tells him, there's three ways you need to treat the children. And he quotes the words of the Talmud. Yemin mekareves, yemin mekareves, yemin mekareves. Yemin means the right hand, mekareves means close. There's three rules. Bring close to the right hand, bring close to the right hand, and bring close with the right hand. And he says to them, wait, doesn't the Talmud also say that push away with the left hand? And he says, yes, once every 50 years you could use that. That's what he said. And I think that it would be a mistake to say that when we're told in the words of Haggadah to push away the wicked one and say, oh, you're not part of us. You, you, you would still be in Egypt if it was up to me. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I think what actually is happening is a little more subtle. We're told, number one, the beginning, bring him close and maybe push him away a little bit. Give him criticism. Tell him that he may not have been redeemed if he was there in Egypt. But how does it tell him? So I think there's there's two important things. First of all, 
But what do we do first? What's the first thing we're told? You should speak to your children in a way that touches their hearts. Pleasantly. That's the first thing we're told. Before there's any criticism, there's pleasantness. And there's endearingness. And there's reaching out. And there's trying to engage and encourage and bring closer. That's the first thing. And only afterward do we say, to me, not for you. That's number one. Number two, the criticism. He was very subtle in his disinclusion of self by saying, what is this Pesach that you are doing? And only we can infer from that, you, but not me. When you respond and you criticize, that too should only be very subtle. You don't say, if we were in Egypt, you wouldn't be there. All we say is that this is what Hashem did for me when I left Egypt. And the criticism is, is, is very veiled. It's very masked. It's only he has to interpret your words, say, for me, not for you. This doesn't sound like it's this brash in your face. Let me smack you down. Let me punch you while you're down. None of that. Even the criticism is very, very concealed. Now, I want to suggest that the criticism is appropriate provided that it was first preceded by the pleasantness. And number two, it's it's concealed. It's not in the open. It's it's covert. And I think that maybe there's two ways to explain why this criticism is beneficial. Number one, what is the nature of this child? This is a child that we see a lot. Whatever you tell them to do, they want to do the exact opposite. Whatever it is. So you say, we're having Pesach. And he says, you're having Pesach, not me. And that's only because you made that announcement. So what that actually means is there's a way to manipulate this. There's a way to get them to reject the things that you want them to reject. So what do you tell them? Pesach is only for me. It's not for you. That's what you tell them. And well, how does the child respond? Oh, yeah? You think it's only for you and not for me? You better believe it's for me. And thus, you're actually harnessing their rebellion to achieve the goal of them participating and partaking. And thus, actually, the criticism is not just to slap them and to let loose some of your anger. The criticism is actually a very clever way to work within the framework of their existing character inclinations and getting them on their own to partake in Pesach and to engage with the holiday, with the meaning of it. That's one suggestion. A second suggestion is that the criticism is constructive because sometimes when people have a great low, that actually inspires the revival. For example, there is a verse that we read, very famous verse in scripture, Sheva Yibol Tzadik Vikam. Seven times the righteous person falls, but they get up. What this means is not that they're righteous and therefore they get up. What it means is they became righteous because they fell down seven times and they got up. If they didn't fall seven times, they wouldn't be righteous. So ironically, the low the disinclusion, the resistance, the criticism actually inspires them to change their ways and have a renewal. That's one example of that idea. A second example 
there's a very powerful teaching in the Talmud. And of course, maybe we could have a whole class on this teaching. But the verse says, the Talmud says, If someone wants to become pure, he is assisted from heaven. If someone wants to become impure, from heaven they open for him, they allow him. So if someone wants to become righteous, he'll be helped from God. If someone wants to become wicked, he'll be allowed by God. And the obvious question is a few questions. Just this whole idea of God helping is, is in itself a, uh, an interesting thing, intriguing thing to, to ponder. But God loves us and God wants our best. I would say, you know, we want the best for our children. And we're told many times in the Torah that we're compared to children of God and he wants the best for us. And therefore, it has to be that regardless of what we want, God wants the best for us. So if I want to become pure, God helps me because God wants me to become pure. If I want to become impure, why is God allowing that to happen? Doesn't God want the best for me? Doesn't God want me to become pure, to become righteous, to become just? Why is he manipulating, allowing me to become impure? Does he not love me? I think the answer is exactly the same thing we're doing with the with the wicked one here. That is, sometimes by allowing them to go down the path that they want to go, that they, they're going to get there and they say, this is not for me, and they're going to turn right back on their own. So it's actually part of God's mercy that he allows the wicked to achieve their aim because by doing that, will actually inspire them to become righteous. Similarly, the child says, the wicked one says, this is not for me, I'm out. It's for you, not for me. They say, okay, let's see how well that works. Not as a tease, but just as a means to say, okay, maybe taste a little bit of, of what you want to see how much you like it. Because it's quite likely that you're not going to like it, and therefore it will be able to bring you back to where you really need to be. Clearly, with the wicked, when we are giving him criticism, it's only because the hope is that it'll be constructive. After the wicked comes the simple one. And the simple one, it's, it's kind of simple because the simple one just asks, what's going on? And you tell him that the Almighty helped us with, took us out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery with an outstretched arm. So who is this simple one? So Rashi says, Ze Tinok Tipesh, which literally means this is a foolish baby. And just asks, what's going on? Which is interesting. What Rashi is telling us, just as a sidebar, a side note, Rashi is telling us there's a certain wisdom to ask questions on a deep level. That's number one. But essentially, Rashi is telling us this child is young, and therefore, they cannot ask sophisticated questions. All they say is, what is this? And the answer, if you'll notice, compared to all the other answers, I think this answer has the most fireworks in it. It has the most drama. You say, we were slaves in the land of Egypt. There's a lot of nouns, a lot of descriptions, and God does that with an outstretched arm. What you're trying to do is you're trying to show some fireworks. You're trying to give some pizzazz to the story to capture their imagination because because they're feeble-minded, they need to picture in their heads. They have to have this imagination of something very grand, and they're not thinking about the kind of the technical sophisticated intellectual realm, the abstract realm, they want a story and they want imagery. And therefore, you try your job is to present them to that and that's how they could learn and grow from the experience. And finally, the son who does not know how to ask, 
don't wait for your child to ask on to, on this night specifically you have to tell them even if they don't ask tell them at a minimum the almighty took us out of the land of egypt you have to try to encourage them to pull out their curiosity to pull out their interest even if they don't ask now this section ends with i think some very powerful lessons this section ends says okay so there's a mitzvah of us teaching our children about the exodus and all different kinds of children in all different kinds of ways but when is this mitzvah? When is there a mitzvah to teach your children about the Exodus? Perhaps you might say that it starts on Rosh Chodesh, on the beginning of the month of Nisan. Well, that can't be so. It has to be on that day, on the day of Pesach. Well, maybe on the day of Pesach, it's the entire day of Pesach, even earlier. The whole day, the whole 14th day, before Pesach even begins, the entire day. Therefore, the verse tells us, no, it's only at the time where the matzah, and the maror are there in front of you. That's what the Hadrata says, is that the only time, the mitzvah, to tell your children about the exodus is specifically during the Seder when there's matzah in front of you and there's maror, maror, the bitter herbs in front of you. So what does this mean? So I, I think what it's telling us, another deep insight, is that there are times which are auspicious for influence. It's a time which is the most impressionable that the child is going to be. You have props. You have a matzah. It's a very strange-looking thing. You have maror. It's very bizarre for us to eat that. There's a lot of things going on that are there to pique the child's interest. And what that means is, is that there are certain times where you could achieve the most in impacting a child. And as a result, you have to grab those opportunities. And you shouldn't try to say, you know what, I'll try to describe this story every day of the year. Because you do that, it kind of gets dull. It gets worn out. It gets tired, the story. Wait until the most opportune time. There's matzah in front of you. There's mara in front of you. This is the time where you can make a huge shift in the life of the child. And I think we know, as adults certainly, that there are times in our own lives, where something, maybe it was a good thing, maybe it was a bad thing, but something had a very deep impression upon us. And these incidents, these are the ones that really have the impact and the ones that accompany a child as they grow up throughout their lives. For the majority, you don't remember, maybe you do, but most people don't remember everything that happens or everything that happened when they were in sixth grade. They remember one or two standout moments, maybe a very good one, maybe a very bad one. That's what they remember. Or maybe they remember nothing. But in their childhood, they remember one or two major things because those really resonated with them because it, it implanted within them. It, it, it etched into their heart this memory. We're told here in the Haggadah is that the night of Pesach, there's matzah in front of you, there's mar in front of you. The entire system is set up to be the most conducive to impart within your children the pillars and the foundations of faith, of amuna, of, of Jewish life, of Jewish ideals, of the Jewish relationship that we have with God. And therefore, this is the time where we're going to try to concentrate all our efforts because this is an impressionable time. In addition, the words of the verse are ba'avur zeh, which the Haggad understands and 
based upon the Talmud, in order for this, which means literally, the Lema'i took us out in order for this. What does it mean in order for this? So Rashi tells us that the Exodus was in order for us to fulfill, fulfill the mitzvot of Pesach, i.e. the Pesach offering, the matzah, and the marrow, the bitter herbs. And I think this is one of those Rashi's and one of those lessons that we could totally miss. There's an amazing idea here in this Rashi. Again, let me repeat it. Rashi says, the verse says, tell your kids, on that day, on the day of Pesach, in order for this, Hashem took us out of Egypt. Telling us why Hashem took us out of Egypt. Says Rashi, in order that we should fulfill the mitzvahs of Pesach, Matzah, and Mar, the mitzvahs that we do on Pesach. I think this flips the whole story on its head. We think that the Exodus was there to make us free. And the way we remember that is with the mitzvahs of Pesach. The goal of the Exodus was the freedom. The mitzvahs are there to make us remember the Exodus. That's how, that's the model that we typically have. Here it's flipping it, it's entirely on its head. The Almighty thing is out of Egypt. Why? In order for this, in order for us to fulfill the mitzvahs of Pesach. We mistakenly think that these mitzvahs are there just as a way, as a means to remember the Exodus. But the Exodus itself was to make us free men. Here we're told that no, that the entire Exodus was specifically because we should fulfill the mitzvahs. The mitzvahs are not a means to remember the Exodus. The mitzvahs are the objective of the Exodus. I think this is a fantastic insight. If we just read this, we, we would never pick this up. What it's telling us is, is that the objective of us coming out of Egypt was that we should fulfill the mitzvahs, not the other way around. On a broader level, what it's telling us is that what connects us with God? We think that the Exodus, my goodness, that Gamadi saved us from the horrific enslavement. Here we're told, no, what actually connects us to God is the mitzvahs. And I think if we could just give these names, we could say that there is the experiential aspects of the Exodus, which is left, and the Almighty made all these miracles and all these experiences that we had. And then there's what we would say is maybe the more abstract, but the more activity-based mitzvahs that we do. And here what we're told is that the objective is for us to exhibit in our own behavior this relationship that we have with God, and that is done specifically for mitzvahs. And therefore, the experience and all that was there to enable this closer bond, which is done with the mitzvahs, which I think, again, is another wrinkle that we could use with our parenting. And that is the ultimate objective of the parenting Again, of course, it's to foster the relationship the child has with God. It's to light that candle. But what is that candle? The candle is when the child exhibits themselves and their behavior, not just in what they believe in their head or what they've experienced, but in their behavior to exhibit a close relationship with God and a total submission to God with a mitzvah. Remember, what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is when a child, when a human obeys God. Why would a human obey God? Because a human accepts God as master. That's why. 
And therefore, what is this ultimate culmination of the Exodus? The ultimate culmination of the Exodus is that we're no longer slaves to Pharaoh. We're slaves to God. We obey God. The objective of what we're trying to achieve as, as a parent is the child studies Torah because the child in their relationship with God has that same thing. It's in order that they should have a relationship with God. In conclusion, I don't think that we've covered everything that there is to cover with these ideas of these four sons. Uh, there are other sources as well throughout the Talmud that talk about the, the different types of children and the different ways you have to treat the children. So there's a lot there, but I think there are some very powerful insights that we see uh, about what the goals are of parenting and what are the means of parenting and the hope that I have and that I wish everyone who's listening is that they are successful in ingraining and implanting lessons of Pesach and the experiences of Pesach to hopefully foster a very close relationship between them and their children and their children and the Almighty and to be successful in accomplishing the objectives of chinuch, of education, to train our children, to guide our children, that they should have a wonderful relationship with their parents, with their friends, and of course, with the Almighty. Chatzamech.